Tonight we're continuing our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, What All Christians Believe. The last couple weeks we've looked at God the Creator and God the One who providentially cares for His people. Tonight we're shifting the focus to look at God the Son, at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tonight we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 4. We're going to read from Acts 4 verse 1 to verse 22. And this is in the uh, temple courts. This is right after Peter healed a man who had been begging in the temple courts for many years. The priests and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, They put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. One of my hobbies is watching professional football I grew up watching the NFL on Sunday afternoons with my dad, and that's a tradition that's continued in our family the last couple years. And a couple weeks ago, we were watching a game between the San Diego Chargers and the Pittsburgh Steelers. The game was in San Diego, but a lot, a lot of the crowd was cheering for the Pittsburgh Steelers. These Steelers fans like to travel around, and they have this habit, they have these weird yellow towels that they wave and they scream and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them and that caused a lot 
of trouble for the San Diego team that night. They expected the crowd to quiet down at certain points so their offense could call plays and make plans and have certain things happen, but the crowd noise stayed pretty high the whole time. So over the course of the game, the home team had to make some adjustments. There were a couple times they couldn't get stuff pulled together quite right. There were a couple times it seemed like things just went wrong because the crowd was getting in the way. And ultimately, the Chargers, the home team, lost when the visitors scored in literally the last second of the game. It's tough when you expect to be the home team, but the crowd doesn't go your way. A week or two ago, Matt Davidson, the superintendent at Timothy Christian School, spoke at our men's breakfast, and he made the point that in America today, in America today, Christians are the visiting team. In our country now, people who believe in Jesus are the visiting team. Things don't automatically go our way. We can't, accept, we can't expect loud cheers and automatic support for our beliefs and our practices. We are the visiting team. We're the ones who don't quite fit. We're the ones who are annoying the authorities of our culture. We're the ones who are annoying the authorities. And that might catch us off guard sometimes. We can't just assume that our faith is going to make sense to people out there in our culture anymore. We can't even assume that people are going to know about it or even care about it all that much. So what do we do with that? How do we deal with this new reality in our culture? Now often the things right in front of us, our struggles right now, are the things that grab our attention. We focus on the challenges we're facing today. But it's nothing new that Christians would be the visiting team. It's nothing new that the world out there wouldn't be all that happy with what followers of Jesus Christ have to say. So tonight we're going to reflect together on what it means to confess Jesus Christ when the world isn't going our way, on what it means to confess Jesus Christ when doing so annoys the authorities. And we'll do that using the story from Acts 4. Now in Acts 3, Peter and John heal a crippled beggar in the temple. This was a grown man who had been unable to walk since birth, so presumably he'd been begging there for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, one day, this man is healed. So people come running to see what happened, and Peter and John stand up, and they start proclaiming the name and the power of Jesus Christ. And then at the beginning of Acts 4, where we picked up our reading for tonight, the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees come, and they seize Peter and John in the middle of their speech seemingly, and they drag them off to jail, and they leave them locked up there overnight. And the next day, they pull them out of jail, and they bring them in front of the temple court, and the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law all meet and bring the apostles before them. Now, this could have been a really intimidating moment for the apostles. The way that court was set up, it was a raised half circle, and the defendant had to stand kind of, not exactly in a pit, but definitely stand below, below the rulers, the teachers of the law, the people up there. So wherever you looked, all around you, you would see a lot of angry old men looking down at you. And these were powerful players in Jerusalem politics. 
These were groups that had overseen worship at the temple for centuries. They controlled the ceremonies and the sacrifices of the Israelites. They had the ear of the Roman authorities. They had economic power, political power, social power, spiritual power. These were people in power. And what's more, this was exactly, exactly the same group that had tried and condemned Jesus just a few days before time. The priests, the temple guard, those were the group that had sneaked out in the middle of the night to the Garden of Gethsemane and dragged Jesus off. This was one of the groups that had said, Jesus has to die. And Acts says that again, this group was greatly disturbed at this teaching of Jesus. Now, greatly disturbed isn't a phrase that we use too much, but you could say the rulers were worn out. They were annoyed. They were sick of it. They couldn't take it anymore. They had killed Jesus to stop this new teaching. And now, just a few days, just a few weeks later, there were some more troublemakers bringing up this same old thing. And so they drag Peter and John in front of them, and they say, by what name, by what power, how dare you do this? And Peter and John's experience there is more typical of Christian believers throughout the centuries than we might find comfortable. Even now in our own culture, we aren't greatly persecuted. Our lives are really, really quite wonderful compared to most Christians in history. But even now, people in our culture are more and more greatly disturbed at the Christian faith centered on Jesus. They're tired of it. They're annoyed by it. They're fed up with it and they don't want to put up with it anymore. And so they say to people of the faith, they say to us, in whose name do you do these things? By what authority do you say what you say? What do you have to say for yourself? How dare you tell me how to live my life? Now, Christians have a lot of ways that we can answer that question. We can point at the good that that, um, Christians have done through history. We can explain the value of what we believe. We can show how we do good things. We can point to any number of historical and logical and personal reasons why we really are justified to do what we do and believe what we believe. But ultimately, what we need to do is we need to point again to Jesus Christ. When we're put on the spot, when we're challenged, when we're annoying the authorities and they demand to know what we're up to, our best strategy is to point to Jesus. So tonight we'll be looking at Jesus. We'll be looking a bit at who he is and then also how we live in light of that. I'll be talking about Jesus and about Christ, about those two terms that we use for the Son of God, Jesus and the Christ tonight. And we'll start with Jesus. Jesus, the Savior. Jesus, our Savior. The name Jesus literally means salvation. That's why God chose that his incarnate son would bear that name. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus' name is salvation because he is our Savior. Now, I doubt anyone here tonight is too surprised by that. This isn't a new message. It's not new news, but it is the good news. And it's the good news that we need to hear and be reminded of 
again and again. Jesus is our Savior. For most people in most of human history, there was this desperate sense of a need for salvation. And most religions in the history of the world have offered some form of salvation, but you get it by works. You get it by doing this thing or doing that thing. In African traditional religions, for example, like where we were when we lived in Nigeria, you had to be always offering sacrifices to the gods and the spirits. People were basically slaves to these spiritual powers. So you had to put food out for the spirits. You had to go out and pound the drums on certain nights. You had to pay the witch doctor for charms. You had to make the sacrifices they told you to make. To get salvation, you had to buy it day after day after day after day. And there was never any end to the payment. Other religions set up the framework differently, but almost always in most of the religions of the world, you need to keep working and working and working and working in order to find salvation. And often you can never be really sure that you've gotten there. You just have to get up the next day and keep on plugging away. Now these days, religions in America or pseudo-religions don't really demand good works as much as they used to. Religions don't prosper in this time and place by demanding that we make sacrifices. But the way religions do prosper is by offering us sales pitches. American pseudo-religiosity is really good at selling people stuff. Click this link, buy this book, send us money, and we can make everything right for you. Buy into this scheme and you'll be healthy and happy. Try this one weird trick and you'll be rich. What happens next will amaze you. There are all kinds of sales pitches out there that promise to make our lives better and either explicitly or implicitly promise to save us from everything that is wrong in our lives. But all of those sales pitches end up empty. They're just a new attempt to make slaves out of us. They offer temporary salvation, but you have to pay for it today, and you have to come back and pay for it tomorrow, and you have to keep on paying and paying and paying until you have nothing left. But Jesus is our Savior now and forever. To find salvation, Christians need Jesus. To find salvation, Christians need Jesus, period. We don't need to keep paying off some angry God or gods. We don't have to figure out the latest tip or trick or scheme to have our happiest life now. We need Jesus. Jesus saves us. That is the message we need to hear. We've had a lot of funerals here at Faith the last little bit, and we'll have some more coming up. And it's always been interesting to me to watch families at graveside services and at the lunches we often have off afterwards. And pretty quickly, you can tell who really, really believes what we're talking about here and who's just kind of along for the ride. Often if we have members of our church who've passed away and their extended family is kind of nominal believers, sort of in, sort of out, not real committed, 
often at the graveside or at the um, luncheons after the graveside, people get to talking and after maybe a couple drinks or just sort of getting a little away from the graveside, they start saying, hey, you know, what's really important is that so-and-so lived a pretty good life. What's really important is that we all get along. What's really important, you know, what's really important is just that we all be okay with each other. There are times at those luncheons I kind of want to just pound my head on the table because we just buried somebody. We just buried somebody. They have gone to their eternal destiny. And then we act like it doesn't matter. And often the people who are acting that way are people who I can see pretty quickly are just trying to fill the void in their lives. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They just can't handle the fact that they have had to look at death that very day. And so they cover it over with some nice words or some alcohol or some chit-chat or something to keep the abyss at bay. But when you talk to people who really believe, when you bury the loved one of people who belong to Jesus Christ, to people who know that their loved one was saved and who know where their salvation is, it changes everything. Jesus saves us. Because Jesus saves us, everything, everything is different forever. And it is only, it is only Jesus who saves us. Jesus is the only true Savior to be had. At the time of the Reformation, the church had fallen into a Jesus and picture of salvation. You needed Jesus, and you needed to do a list of good works. You needed Jesus, and you also needed to pray to the saints so they would be on your side. You needed Jesus, and you needed to put some money in the offering plate. You needed Jesus, and. Back then, all kinds of things got between believers and Jesus in the salvation process. And today, I don't think people necessarily have that exact problem. We don't have as much, you need Jesus and good works. But we have a lot of Jesus or understandings of salvation. The contemporary world really wants us to say, we can be saved by Jesus or somebody else. Maybe I'm saved by Jesus, but it's okay if they're saved, well, by whatever they want. You can be saved by Jesus or, or by any deity or any guru or any belief that you choose. The challenge of our day maybe isn't so much that people, that people believe that good works can bring salvation or that people believe they need to do Jesus and something else. It's that they believe they can do Jesus or whatever else they like. Any teaching is good. All roads lead to the top of the same mountain. People are happy to let anybody believe anything as long as nobody claims to be really right. You can say there are no gods. You can say everybody is a god. It doesn't matter. It's all good. It's easier just to go fuzzy on the details. It's easier just to say it's all going to work out for everybody, so don't stress about it. It's hard for us to really believe it's hard for us to really even say no. 
Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. Only in Jesus can we find hope. It's really hard to take that stand in today's world. And it's really hard to take that stand in a loving way. In a world where we encounter more and more diversity, we need to work harder and harder to insist that Jesus is the only true hope, the only true Savior. And we also need to be more and more winning, more and more charitable, more and more patient, and more and more long-suffering. So we look to Jesus. We look to who he is. We hold on to the reality that he saves us and that he is the only one who can save. But then we also live according to the pattern that Jesus Christ has given us. So now we're going to shift to looking at Christ, our anointed prophet, priest, and king. Christ is actually not a name. Christ is a title. And it means the anointed one, the ordained one, the one appointed to do something. If you want to use the words from Acts 4, Jesus is the capstone of God's plan. Jesus is the capstone. He's the one that everything else depends on. Jesus is the one who holds everything together. Jesus, the Christ of God, is God's anointed prophet, priest, and king. And we sometimes talk about Christ as the prophet, priest, and king to get at some different ways that he stands at the center of God's plan and God's work. So first, Christ is the true prophet of God. Christ is the one who ultimately speaks to humanity on God's behalf. Jesus is God's revelation, and he reveals God's truth to us. And along with that, Christ is the true priest of God. Christ is the one who sacrificed himself for our sins, and he's also our advocate. He's the one who stands between God and us and says, these are my people and they are clean. And Christ is the final and true king. He rules over us, he takes care of us, and he is the king who is conquering evil and who will conquer evil forever. Christ is the final, true ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And we are called in some lesser, some much smaller, some much less significant way to echo who Christ is in those three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And we see a beginning reflection of that in what Peter and John do here in Acts 4. First, they speak the truth about God. The rulers and the elders in this chapter are shocked by Peter's little speech in verses 8 to 12. These are political people who had dealt with troublemakers before. And often putting someone in jail overnight and then bringing them in front of an intimidating court is a pretty good way to make people shut up or act out. You do that to someone, often if they're crazy, they're going to demonstrate it. And if they're not, they're going to know what's good for them and they're going to back off and do whatever you want. But Peter and John don't do either of those things. Instead, Peter stands in front of this body of powerful, angry old men, and he gives them a sermon that they can't talk back to. G or Peter stands there, and he tells the people the truth. 
and he's backed up by the power and the name of Jesus Christ. And because Peter and John stood in that name and had that power of Jesus, they were willing to serve as living sacrifices for God. Being in prison even overnight in the ancient world wasn't any joke. But even having that miserable night didn't slow the apostles down. Questioning and threats didn't even make them pause. In the verses of Acts 4, after the ones we read for tonight, Peter and John are released, and they go and they find the other believers, and they pray. And they don't pray that God would release them from suffering. They don't pray that they wouldn't have to sacrifice their lives for God. They pray that God would give them the boldness to do whatever he calls them to do and to speak Jesus' name. When faced with suffering, the apostles ask God for boldness, not for relief. And the apostles were committed to serving their Savior, and they knew where their ultimate allegiance lay. They knew they were caught up in the cosmic battle between good and evil, and they weren't sure what it was going to look like in the short term, but they knew who was going to win. And so when they're faced with threats from the enemy, when this court gives them a gag order, they look back and they say, who should we obey? Should we obey you men, or should we obey the Lord God? Peter says, judge for yourselves. Judge for yourselves, you judges. Should we obey you, or should we obey God? And obviously, Peter and John went on, and they obeyed God. You will probably be put on the spot in the days ahead. I hope you weren't dragged off to stand in front of a court of angry old men, but you will probably be put on the spot in the days ahead. Around the water cooler at work, maybe. Hey, you go to church. What do you think about Jesus? Over the back fence. Hey, you Christians. Why do you think you're right and everyone else is wrong? You people are so arrogant. It just ticks me off. Or who knows what other situation you'll encounter. But you probably will be put on the spot. And we need a lot of wisdom when we respond to those situations. And we also need to be always ready to confess and to witness to Jesus Christ. To confess and to witness to Jesus Christ. When someone asks what we believe or why we believe it or why we do what we do as Christians, there's some other things we can do. But most of all, we need to be forthright and we need to point again to Jesus, our Savior, the only true Savior. And we need to be prepared to say, and to say it respectfully, to say it lovingly, to say it clearly, but to say, and that's not just my view, that's God's view. This is the truth, that Jesus saves his people. All of us need to pray, to prepare, so that God enables us to speak his word boldly and truly. We should expect that we will be called to confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We should expect that we will suffer because of that confession. And we should expect that Jesus will win in the end. We need to confess, 
we may suffer, we know who will win. Jesus Christ is the only true Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. That's good news. That's good news that matters more than anything else. And may God fill all of us with his Holy Spirit so that we can be his witnesses, so that we may know the good news, believe the good news, and proclaim the good news. In the name of Jesus Christ, we find the salvation that we need, and we find that God gives us everything from his heavenly, fatherly hand.